Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. Also in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, we, of course, have Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey. How are you? Hello, David. I am exceedingly well. Thank you. Excellent. And we have near Washington, D.C., I suspect, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law School. How are you today, Rosa? I'm very well, David. And we have... Our friend Joe Serencioni of the Quincy Institute. How are you doing today, Joe? Just great, David. Thanks for having me on. And I'm not sure where our friend David Sanger is. Where are you, David Sanger? I'm in the great state of Vermont. The great state of Vermont. Well, that's not a bad place to be with all the trees and the leaf peeping and all of the things that people do at this time of year, eating cider donuts and that sort of well, thing. We have had cider donuts. The uh, the leaves are on their way out, you know, which tells you winter is indeed coming. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm not uh, surprised and uh, a little, I find that a little depressing, but, but let's not focus on that. Um, <laughs> there was uh, news that I think came as a, a shock to all of us today, and I'd like to start with that. Colin Powell, who was really one of the great public servants of our time, former national security advisor, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, former secretary of state, among other things, after a long distinguished military career, passed away due to complications from COVID. I personally found it made me very sad because quite apart from all the things that he did in his life, uh, those of us who got to know him knew someone who was very menchy. He grew up in the Bronx and he learned some Yiddish. He would know what menchy meant. He had a great sense of humor and was a warm guy. And I don't have any bad memories of, of Colin Powell. Uh, but I just thought since all of you have a perspective on him and his impact, we should start with that. And let me start with you, Corey. I, too, am grieving over the passing of that great American. I went to work in General Powell's joint staff when I was a 26-year-old PhD student. And first of all, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff didn't think it was strange that his NATO expert uh, in 1990, as the Cold War was requiring all sorts of big, important decisions coming to as it came to an end, he didn't think it was weird that I was his NATO military expert, which is one of the really wonderful things about him. My favorite recollection of him is that he would very often tell me 
that there were a lot of reasons to fire me, but only two good reasons not to. And one was that it was fun to watch me do my job. And that second, I was the only NATO expert he'd ever met who, when he asked me what time it was, would just tell him what time it was instead of give him the history of clock working. Um, <laughs> and I love that so much because it connects so many of the really wonderful things about Powell. First of all, his fundamental fairness. If you were good at your job, he wanted to hear what you had to say. Second of all, that he took fun in hard work. He made the hard stuff fun, which was part of why he was such a great leader. Third, he was engendering loyalty to me by, by making me feel different and special, even though I was a random garden variety action officer in a staff of 1,500. And the fourth thing was he was reminding me not to waste his valuable time with stuff I thought was important that he didn't need to know. Yeah, all I can do when I hear each of the recollections that I've heard all day is think of some corresponding story. I'm going to restrain myself and turn to David Singh. Well, he was all those things, and I never got to work for him as Corey did, though uh, many people who did really developed an incredible affection for him while they were doing so. But to cover him was quite an experience. First of all, he was fun to travel with. Uh, He would come back in the plane, tell great stories, so forth. Second, he brought to it, to the job, a body of knowledge raised in the military with a deep understanding of diplomacy. And, you know, he kept a, a big portrait of Marshall outside in his outer office where you sort of where you were waited when you came in to go see him, who was, of course, you know, the only other four star to then, you know, go on and become secretary of state. And um, he was interesting about Marshall. I would say that my most searing memory of him, and I've just been writing about this for The Times this morning came in June of 2003. It was four or five months after he had given the famous United Nations speech, making the case about why we should go into uh, to war with Iraq or why Iraq was posed a huge threat. He had already seen that much of the evidence he presented was falling apart. Uh, we were at work on a big reconstruction for the Times of how that evidence had fallen apart. And how our reporting that had been based on that evidence didn't look so good either. And we sat for two hours in his little back office, the the sort of secretary's hideaway. There's not the formal one out there. As we went through the evidence that he had been presented, as he told me what he had pushed back on, what he didn't say, as we talked about why he went out there at all, he was clearly tortured about it. He had some bad feelings for George Tenet, who, um, while Colin Powell had grown up in the Bronx, he thought Director Tenet, then the head of the CIA, would have his back. But he said, well, of course, you know, he grew up in Queens. And he did something I've never seen a government official sort of do before. He talked about what he shouldn't have done, what he wished he had known at the time. And it made for some pretty compelling reading. It also separated him forever from much of the rest of the Bush crowd who argued that they had acted on the best intelligence they had at the time and 
didn't delve into what the doubts were. And I thought, boy, does that take guts to sit down with a New York Times reporter and walk through what you just got wrong? And I've rarely seen that happen before. Yeah, no doubt that was true. I I listened to uh, some of the reflections this morning on Morning Joe, and there was a particularly, I thought, effective one from Richard Haas, the head of the Council on Foreign Relations, who was the head of policy planning at state during this period that David describes. And Haas noted that they spent days and days prior to that UN speech cutting things out that they had been given by the vice president and by Rumsfeld that were just wrong. And they were really, really trying their best to ensure that, you know, the evidence they were, they were using was, was right. Of course, they, it turned out it was wrong and, and he owned up to it, as David said, in a way that was in stark contrast to most other government officials. Rosa, what about you? You know, I've always seen Colin Powell as as a bit of a tragic figure. So many things about him are so stunningly impressive. I think he was a good man. I think he was a humane man. I think he was extraordinarily talented man. He broke important barriers. Uh, He really inspired love uh, and loyalty from people who worked with him. But there are two moments that really stick out for me. One of them is the one that David has already mentioned. Colin Powell went out there and, you know, whatever his inner reservations and so on, and whatever the things he chose not to say, he was really instrumental in selling Americans on the war in Iraq, you know, selling them on the idea that there were WMD there. Uh, And the other moment that comes to mind is when the Bush administration, when others in the Bush administration, particularly in the White House, said they didn't want to apply the Geneva Conventions to war on terror detainees. We have that, uh, remember, Alberto Gonzalez, the attorney general at the time, memo arguing for this. Powell argued against it internally and stood up internally for what was right and legal, essentially saying, you know, this, if we don't apply the Geneva Conventions, we will be setting a bad example. We will be going backwards. This will end up being destructive to us. This is, by the way, against the law. And that was good. But he never did speak out publicly until until it was much, much, much too late. You know, he, he lost that battle and he did what, depending on your point of view, a good soldier should do or a good soldier shouldn't do, which is that then he could stay quiet as the rest of the administration he served went ahead and did things that he knew to be unlawful and really unconscionable. And, you know, I, I both have a tremendous empathy for him being in such a difficult situation as a man who had given his life to a set of principles about loyalty and obedience, and yet found himself being asked to be loyal and obedient to things that in some cases were were unconscionable. I think he made the wrong choice, certainly on the Geneva Conventions, the war on terror stuff. I think it's possible that he did his best and thought he was making the right choice on the WMD issue. But it's really hard not to think of his legacy without thinking of those two things. This is not to say there's a good deal. There's an enormous amount to mourn with his passing. I think he really was a man who did everything possible to be principled. But there were a couple moments where he didn't quite make it. Joe? Just picking up on some of the comments that people have made, I, I got to meet Colin Powell and get to know him personally 
in this century when he was with the Nuclear Threat Initiative on the board of that nuclear organization. And I was then president of Plowshares Fund and we were working on nuclear issues. But I first actually met him many years earlier when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and testifying before the House Armed Services Committee, where I was a lowly staffer and I had the chutzpah to go up to him right before his testimony and just shake his hand. I just wanted to meet the man. He was already a, a superstar back then, 1989, 1990. And he treated me like I was the only person in the room. When there's, there's nothing like being greeted by Colin Powell and how he focuses on you as an individual. He's warm. He was human. It's part of what Corey was saying. Each individual with respect and, and dignity and there are probably thousands of people in this town who have experiences like that. When I got to know him on a nuclear issue, I went back and read his wonderful autobiography, which I recommend to people, My American Journey. And in that autobiography, he describes his experience as the, the head, I guess he was a colonel of a, a nuclear artillery brigade in West Germany. And this is during the Cold War, and he's being told by his general uh, that what his role would be in case of a Soviet invasion, which was to launch dozens of nuclear weapons at the invading Soviet force. And he thought this was insane, that we'd be using nuclear weapons in populated areas and be killing tens of thousands, millions of the people we were supposed to be defending. And he writes in his autobiography that he swore that if he ever had a chance to do something about it, he would. And if the war in Iraq and his speech at the UN was probably the low point of his career. One of his high points was as, ch as chairman helping H.W. Bush in 1991 unilaterally eliminate thousands of nuclear weapons from the U.S. arsenal, uh, gestures that were then mirrored by Mikhail Gorbachev and, and the Soviets. He denuclearized the U.S. Army. He denuclearized the surface Navy. He withdrew hundreds, thousands even of nuclear weapons from Europe and from South Asia, um, from the coast of Japan. Really a remarkable, remarkable point in nuclear arms control. And I, I think these were some of the things. And in, in the end of his life, in the last 10 years of his life, rather, he, he would say over and over again that his experience in the army had convinced him that nuclear weapons were useless. That, they, that we would never actually use these things. And he worked very, very hard to try to continue the elimination and reduction. For that, I think that the country has lost a champion of common sense of, and of, of simple humanity in how he would treat even those who opposed him on these issues. For example, on his p position on the Iraq war, which I wrote at the time that he was wrong and, and, and shouldn't have lent his prestige to this disastrous policy. Uh, he said to me, and maybe some of you as well, that that was the greatest mistake of his life. And as you can see, it's the first line in many of his obituaries. It's, I hope we get to remember Colin Powell for much more than just that mistake. I hope so too. You know, there is um, much to be said about him as a, as a human being, but, you know, he was also a kind of a quiet revolutionary in a lot of very constructive ways, whether it's becoming the first African-American national security advisor, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, or secretary of state, which is no small thing, or helping to reset the outlook of the U.S. military after Vietnam and establishing principles which are still referred to, although sometimes ignored today, 
And then, you know, later in his life, he became one of the first people to speak out as the Republican Party drifted away from the, the, the values that had drawn him to it. He endorsed Barack Obama, uh, even though he had been friendly with McCain and was quite outspoken with regard to Donald Trump. These are all things that also redound to his credit, quite apart from military achievements like the success of the first Gulf War. So I think we need to take the whole picture. Corey, if I can turn back to you and pick up on something that Joe referred to with regard to nuclear issues, we seem to be at a a kind of a strange point with regard to nuclear policy in the United States. On the one hand, we're pushing for this JCPOA to be restored, not making a huge amount of progress on that, it seems, and now seems like Iran is two months away from the ability to produce a nuclear weapon. They want to, they don't have a delivery system, but they're a lot closer than they were uh, when Trump pulled us out of the JCPOA. And there is clearly an impulse there to get back under control. And yet I also saw this story over the weekend, David wrote about it a little bit, but of uh, the Chinese hypersonic missile test, which was somewhat ominous to me. And, and David wrote a story about this today, about whether or not we should characterize what's happening with the U.S. and China as sort of drifting into a new Cold War, but suggest that there are some out there beating the drums for more investment in these technologies. How do you see this moment, Corey? So I don't think hypersonic nuclear weapons change the fundamental equation that China could deliver some of its 300 and some nuclear weapons on the American homeland before they had hypersonic weapons. It makes clear the shortcomings of missile defense systems, which are not omnidirectional. So I don't think it changes the fundamental deterrent equation. And I do think that that deterrent equation is stable among nuclear possessing states. That is, it's an enormous disincentive to war of any kind. And it's an enormous disincentive to allowing miscalculations or small conflicts to escalate to world wars. But it does sound like we were surprised by the innovations. At least uh, we were surprised in public by the innovations. And it suggests a level of ambition on the part of China that I think is going to fuel our conversation about what to do about China. That is, a China that had only regional ambitions would probably not want a nuclear arsenal of this kind. And so that may mean how we think about China as a challenge to the existing international order, that that concern would deepen. And I guess the third thing I would say about it is that um, I don't share your description of American nuclear investment. I think we are overdue for modernization of our force. And I would actually like to see more advanced modernization 
that gave us greater confidence we could reduce to lower numbers in the inventory. I would much rather have a modernized smaller force than the force that we have. And I think we're missing opportunities there. And the modernization that's underway isn't a newsflash. President Obama committed to Republicans in Congress he would undertake this in return for votes in support of New START. And so this isn't a reaction to anything and shouldn't be cut out of the budget, no matter what you think of the current force or the prospects for arms control. I have a sneaking suspicion Joe would like to respond to that, but I'm going to go to David first because he was writing about it today. Go on, David. As you suggested, what I wrote about was sort of the broader question of, do we think this moment in time we are at is slipping into a Cold War with China? And noting that the administration is avoiding the term and noting that there are very few similarities between this and the Cold War with the Soviet Union of 35, 40 years ago. But the nuclear element of it that you raise is one of those areas that sort of got echoes of the 50s and 60s, you know, back when you started Deep State Radio. And the military modernization for China, the nuclear modernization, has been going on pretty quickly. It's been accelerating. I don't know how we could sit around shocked if they are doing um, hypersonic tests, uh, though we haven't confirmed the Financial Times story about this particular one in, in August. It wouldn't surprise me at all if it turns out that that or some version of it is true, because we're working on hypersonic missiles. So what would you expect them to do? And not work on this? And second, they have a strong interest in showing that even if we say that our Pacific missile defenses are all about deterring North Korea, that they have a technology that could easily move around them. And our current missile defenses are intended to handle the classic high arch launch, you know, on a predictable path and intercept it. And basically, this is their way of saying, congratulations, you just wasted several hundred billion dollars building a missile defense that is outdated. That said, what does worry me about what the Chinese are doing is that they may, and I stress the word may, have given up on their concept of a minimal deterrent and may have may be deciding that since President Trump tried to pull them into the New START Treaty or the renegotiation of it, which they refused to do. Remember, they were not a signatory of any of our arms control treaties prior to that, that if that's going to happen in the future, they're better to go into it with numbers more akin to what we and the Russians have. And so maybe it's incumbent on us to listen to Corey and think about what a modernized but vastly smaller nuclear arsenal would look like, because it would not create the incentive for the Chinese to build up to our levels. And I think you can make a pretty good case that we could have a survivable nuclear force at vastly smaller numbers than what we have, and perhaps giving up our ground-based arsenal. It might also help us if we were moving down at a moment that we're trying to convince the Iranians to move to zero, or the Iranians not to build nuclear weapons at all, I should say, and to trying to convince the North Koreans to move to zero. Well, I think I think David's points are, ex are exactly right on that. And it's, it's always important to remember that when 
a country is building nuclear weapons, they always see them as defensive. They think that what they're doing, the numbers, the modernization, is all to defend the country and deter somebody else from attacking that. And that's how the Chinese think about this, too. The problem is that when you see the other guy doing it, you think it's offensive. You believe that this is aimed at some global domination strategy. And that's how the Chinese view our continued modernization efforts. I know Corey believes that we're not, we haven't done enough, but we are continually modernizing a nuclear force. Ever since 1945, we've been modernizing a nuclear force. So there are programs underway. We have a, we're building a whole new fleet of bombers. We're, we're building a whole new fleet of nuclear armed submarines. We gave the first contracts for a new b- ballistic missile uh, in the last year of the, tr- the Trump administration. So this, this stuff is underway. It's much bigger than what Obama imagined. He thought we would modernize the force. That is, as long as you have nuclear weapons, they have to be effective, safe, and reliable. But he thought this would be coupled with a steady series of arms control treaties that would bring it down to the kind of levels that I think Corey and David are saying, a much smaller but modern force. That's not what's happening. You know, We're building more kinds of nuclear weapons. And this brings us to the Chinese hypervelocity missile. Corey is absolutely right. It doesn't change the fundamentals. All our missiles are hypervelocity. That is to say, they travel at five times, at ranges at speeds greater than five times the speed of sound, the definition of hypervelocity. A warhead comes, we enters the Earth's atmosphere many times faster. What's different about this is not the speed, but the maneuverability of the vehicle that the Chinese demonstrated or the news broke of it just over the weekend. The Chinese, by the way, insist this wasn't a missile. This was a peaceful re-entry vehicle, which it could be. So it's a glide vehicle. That is, it launches on a missile following the ballistic trajectory that David describes. But then when it re-enters, it has glide capability. It's able to maneuver. And what that does to missile defenses is illustrated by playing ball in Houston at the Astrodome. And if you watch the, I'm sorry, Corey, I know the Cardinals aren't in the playoffs anymore. But if you watch the Red Sox-Astros game, you could see the problem that occurs when a baseball following a ballistic trajectory off the bat hits the roof of the Astrodome and it changes course. And that makes it much more difficult for the outfielder to know where it's going to land. And that's exactly what maneuvering vehicles do. They change course. So your missile defense system, which is based on plotting a trajectory, one point, two points, now you, get, you understand the trajectory of the system. You can plot an intercept point. You can't do that anymore with maneuvering reentry vehicles. And why are the Chinese doing this, going through the trouble? And why are the Russians doing this, going to the trouble? Because we keep fielding and say uh, missile defense systems and insisting that we're going to integrate them all and develop a global defense system. So they feel for their security, they have to overcome that. They have to assure that their weapons, they have about 100 that can reach the United States now can penetrate any conceivable defense system. So you have this dynamic. I don't know if we're in a Cold War with China now, but we are certainly in an arms race. And this is is the latest manifestation of it. And it could get much more unpredictable and therefore much more dangerous in the years ahead. Let us hope that none of our adversaries gains the assistance of the Houston Astros in helping them to cheat on international agreements. Well, there is a corollary to that. That is impossible. Every single Houston batter 
And that should be the deterrent lesson internationally. And I tip my hat though for use of a baseball trajectory and explaining to all of us that technical point. I would take this in a slightly different direction and say the lesson the Chinese learned from this is that if you have a first and second inning like the Red Sox had, there is no rest of the game. <laughs> well, that is the Powell doctrine. Go in with overwhelming force. Right? Yeah. Score eight runs in the first two innings. You know, I feel very bad here because I'm now going to turn to Rosa, who um, There's is, nothing not left a huge, to say. is not a huge <laughs> fan of sports ball. I know, really. <laughs> Rosa was watching every moment of that Red Sox game. I can guarantee it. Well, not exactly. So I actually wanted to raise a different nuclear weapons related question and, and particularly aim this question at, at Joe. We were talking about Colin Powell's legacy. We were talking about the, the approach of the Obama administration, now the Biden administration to nuclear weapons, what it should be. One issue we have not talked about, but that reared its ugly head very much at the towards the end of the Trump administration in particular was the question of the launch procedures and the safeguards that we have in connection with with the decision to actually make use of nuclear weapons. I mean, as Joe noted, everybody always assumes that their nuclear weapons are only for defensive purposes. I don't think Donald Trump assumed that, right? I think everybody else assumed that, but it's not at all clear that Donald Trump felt that way. And true, we have another Trump administration in 2020, starting after the election of 2024, or another president with Trumpian attributes, there's no guarantee that that will be the case in the future either. And I wondered if you could talk about the question of whether we have adequate legal and procedural safeguards to prevent the extremely irresponsible use of nuclear weapons. And if not, I'm assuming your answer is not really. <laughs> uh, what can we do and what do you think it might be realistic to do um, in the with this Congress or in the near future, if anything? Well, you don't need Congress to change the launch procedures. You know, we often talk about nuclear weapons as the president's weapons and the president determines the posture, the, the alert status. The... That doesn't solve any of our problems, right? If Because then a, if a Trump can, without Congress, then a president right. can do what they want. So how you solve this particular problem, the problem that came up in whether Donald Trump was stable and therefore and whether he might unilaterally launch nuclear weapons after the events of January 6th. Unfortunately, the posture we have right now is a Cold War posture. It was designed to be able to allow the president to quickly respond in the face of a bolt out of the blue attack. And so you have to, it emphasizes speed and reliability. And, and, and once the order is given, it is, un, it is faithfully executed as quickly as possible because you've got to launch your missiles out of the underground silos before the enemy warheads can hit them. So that you have about 20 minutes from the first notice that you get of incoming warheads to be able to launch. So that's what determines the whole procedure. But that is not the threat we face now. We are not really worried about a bolt out of the blue. So you could safely change those procedures in various ways. For example, and this is what people, what, what the president could require, he could say from now on, we're gonna have two people affirm a launch order. So not just the president, but perhaps the president and the vice president or the president and the secretary of defense. Or for some, it's the president and the speaker of the house. You could do that. You could also declare that it's U.S. policy never to use nuclear weapons first. 
that is, our weapons are here to deter somebody else from attacking us, we're not going to launch them first. And if you do that, and then this is where Congress could come into play, codify that into law so that the other next president can't quickly change it. Any order that a president would take to launch nuclear weapons when we're not under attack would be an illegal order, and therefore the military wouldn't have to uh, support it. So those are the kind of fixes that are, are available. Whether President Biden will take any of them, he's due to release a nuclear posture review early in, in the next year. I don't know. The signs are not encouraging. President Biden seems to be very cautious about both nuclear modernization, that is spending about $2 trillion over the next 25 years on nuclear weapons, and about nuclear policy. So I, I don't expect that President Biden is going to make any fundamental changes in the posture and the programs that he inherited from Donald Trump. So we've only got five minutes. I'd like to give everybody a, a chance, a minute or so, to wrap up their thoughts on this. Let me go to you, Corey. Yeah, I'm not in favor of doing that. I would yeah. rather have the problems that come with effective launch control, effective and speedy launch controls in the extreme circumstances of a nuclear conflict. and caution the public not to elect people you worry about exercising then I would prefer to build in uh, restrictions that may make it either onerous or impossible to execute that terrible responsibility. Uh, David, do you have a, a last word? Here? Yeah. I'm less concerned than Corey is about not having unitary control. I would note that even the Russians have sort of moved to more of a committee kind of group, although I wouldn't want to be a junior member of the committee to Vladimir Putin, I think. But I do think that this nuclear posture review is going to be a moment for a big rethink of what we need and what we don't need. And if I was President Biden and I was pushing through four or five trillion dollars in programs that he's trying to get in in the next couple of weeks and get through. And I had an opportunity to go save a trillion or so on parts of a modernization plan for something that he hopes will never have to go use. I think I might grab at that. And so I think that the nuclear posture review is a great opportunity to ask anew what was asked and not really answered in the Obama administration, which is do we really need a ground-based system? Isn't it a sitting duck? Isn't it just waiting to get hit? Is, is that the concept to absorb the strike? Should we, could we do much better with a much smaller, much more survivable fleet? And, you know, if we don't ask that question now, we're not going to have another opportunity for 35 or 40 years. So while I wouldn't necessarily prejudice the answer, I would think about that. And I think I might throw in along the way the cyber survivability of this fleet. Rosa, I imagine you have strong feelings on this, given that you live for half the year in a silo beneath <laughs> the prairies of Wyoming. Well, I do feel that greater nuclear terror and a, a stepped-up new arms race might increase the value of my silo. So I, I feel like I may have conflict of interest here. That taking the long view and and the public service oriented view. Do you have any uh, reaction to what Joe said in response to your question? The nature of this kind of thing, obviously, is that 
in dire in a dire situation, a president is sort of going to do what a president is going to do, which I also I, you know, one of the reasons that is often given for why the U.S. Uh, a U.S. president should not declare that it is our policy not to use nuclear weapons offensively, but only defensively, you know, no first use is, oh, but, you know, then won't people think we're a bunch of wusses and they won't take us seriously and it'll have less of a deterrent effect. I don't think that's true for the simple reason that presidents will do what presidents will do. And all of our allies and adversaries will understand that no matter what we say, we will do what we decide that we need to do. You know, I don't think that other nations take any more seriously our declarations of policy than we take theirs, quite frankly. As we've discovered during the Trump administration, or as we've been reminded, no matter how seemingly tight either executive branch regulations or congressional legislation is, a determined president who has a sufficient number of people around him or her can and occasionally will ignore all laws and policies. To me, the value of not simply relying on executive branch regulations but of, of coming up with as many complicated procedures as we can is precisely it just makes it that little bit harder for a president to just go around the law and ignore the law. Um, Joe, just we have a minute or two here, but Rosa raises an interesting question. How many times over do we have to be able to destroy the world for people not to think we're a bunch of wusses? Well, this is exactly the point. So much of this discussion is decided on a political level. And it's, we, we think we're talking about strategy because we, we say things, and as Corey so eloquently says, you know, I'd rather be, be safe and I'd rather have these procedures. And you put on a bunch of value-laden statements, um, a bunch of goals, a bunch of positions that you think, well, yes, this makes, this sounds good. This is sound, sensible policy. Until you look at the hardware and you look at where, what it results in. And it results in, for example, us having 14 nuclear missile subs that carry about 2,000 warheads, 2,000 hydrogen bombs, each one of which is about 30 times more powerful, 20 times more powerful than Hiroshima. So you're talking about a subforce alone that has 40,000 Hiroshimas on it. And you go, what possible military mission requires that amount of destructive force? And why do you then feel the need to add to this? With land-based missiles and with subs and with low, new low-yield weapons and with nuclear-armed cruise missiles and on and on and on and on, and it doesn't make any sense at all. So it, what you what you're doing is nuclear overkill that satisfies sort of a political posture or an a, electioneering slogan, but presents, as Colin Powell knew one of the great existential threats to humanity and the one that, that is the, the surest. We can destroy within hours everything that humanity has created over the millennia. To, the, to his dying days, Colin Powell was hoping that we would come to our senses. He died without, without seeing that. I certainly hope we, we do come to our senses, if not immediately, then gradually. I want to thank each of you for joining us this week as every week, and suggest that uh, those of you who are interested in finding out more about what we've got going on, go to the dsrnetwork.com. Uh, you can click on membership, support what we're doing here. Thank you, Joe, for joining us. Thank you, uh, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, David. Thank you, everybody out there. 
And we look forward to joining uh, you all again sometime soon. And in the meantime, take good care of yourselves. Bye-bye.